So uh, Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry. In fact, this is uh, the last of this class series. This is our final class uh, studying the uh, final parables of Jesus. So if you recall, Jesus and the disciples have been hiding out in a wilderness area in a place called Ephraim, which is sort of a contradiction in terms. So we don't really know where they're where they are. The region historically associated with the tribe of Ephraim is north of Jerusalem in what's now Samaria, uh, but the wilderness uh, would normally be the area south, down near Idumean. And so, anyway, as they travel, Jesus continues training his disciples. He's stuffing them with parables, trying to help them remember all of his important points. In this next parable, he returns to the most basic theme of all, what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is this is how he started his ministry. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire day laborers to work in his vineyard. He offers to pay them a full day's wage for their work. They agree and head off into the vineyard and start working. About three hours later, the landowner goes to the market again, sees a bunch of other laborers standing around doing nothing. So he tells them to go work in his vineyard as well. To this group, he says, I will pay you a fair wage. So off they go. The landowner does this every few hours throughout the day. Each time telling the workers he will pay them a fair wage. Finally, at 5 p.m., the landowner goes out one last time. And again, he finds day laborers standing around in the marketplace. He says, why have you been standing idle all day long? And they say, well, because no one hired us. So the landowner says, okay, you can go work in my vineyard too. About an hour, hour later, the sun starts to go down. So the owner of the vineyard calls his foreman and says, Okay, time to call the workers in and pay them. He says, but first call in the ones who came to work at 5 p.m. and pay them. Then call the ones that came at 3 p.m. and so on, all the way back to the ones I hired first. Now, I don't know if you've noticed already, but in classic Jesus style, the last are being paid first and the first are being paid last. Of course, all the workers, you know, end up standing around waiting to be paid. And the foreman pays the workers who came in at, at five o'clock, you know, a full day's wage, even though they worked only one hour. Now, that really surprises the rest of the workers. You can imagine them looking at each other and thinking, yay, if those guys who only worked an hour get a full day's wage, then think how much more we'll get. But group by group, 
they get paid the same as all the rest of the workers. No matter what time each worker started, no matter whether they worked one hour or 12 hours, everyone gets paid a full day's wage. The workers who work the longest start grumbling against the landowner. Hey, how come those guys who only worked an hour get paid the same as us? We did most of the work and we worked through the heat of the day. But the landowner says to one of them, I have not wronged you, my friend. Didn't we agree to a full day's wage? Take what is yours and go. It is my will, my wish, my desire to give this last one the same wage I gave you. Or am I not permitted to do what I wish with what is mine? Or are you envious because I am generous? And Jesus says, this is the point. The last will be first and the first will be last. But to me, the point actually seems to be even bigger than that. Yeah, the you know, we can see that the first will be last um, and will not be shorted at all. Um, they will receive all that is theirs and all that is theirs is exactly the same as what belongs to all of us. The, the, the people who got there the first and stayed the longest, they are receiving and being received into the kingdom of heaven where the great storehouse of God belongs to us all. First and last, get the same thing. We get all of it. This isn't pie where we each get a slice and we need to make sure our slice corresponds to the amount of our work or effort or time or gifting or goodness, or even our faith. If any of us has even the tiniest bit of belief, no bigger than a mustard seed, we get it all. All of us get it all. Well, at this point, Jesus and his entourage have reached Jericho, east of Jerusalem. This next story is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and Matthew even has it in there twice, or at least he's recorded two very similar events in his Gospel. Depending on which Gospel you're reading, there are either two blind men by the side of the road or one blind blind man. In some versions, the blind man is named, in others, he's not. So I'm going to tell you kind of a mashup of the various versions. As always, it's not the particulars of the event that are important, but what Jesus says and does. Jesus and his disciples and the crowd following them are not quiet. This is a bunch of people and they're talking and they're, I mean, you can't can't even imagine how much noise is happening here. Jericho is a major town, but no one can miss Jesus and his entourage. Hearing the noise, the two blind men by the side of the road ask, hey, what's going on? And when they hear that it's Jesus, the great healer passing by, they start waving and hollering to get his attention. One of them named Bartimaeus shouts, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Everyone shushes him, telling him to be quiet. But the two blind men start shouting even louder, Lord, son of David, have pity on us. 
And of course, Jesus stops the parade to listen to these two blind beggars. Jesus never has anything more important to do, nor anywhere more pressing to be, than to be with those who need healing. Jesus came to show us that God truly wants to heal us. That's why he's here. He always has times for this. Jesus asked the blind men, what is it you want me to do for you? I love how Jesus never assumes and how he leaves all the agency in their hands. This is kind of his pattern, isn't it? And so they tell him they want their sight. And Jesus asks, do you believe I have the power to do this? And they say, yes, yes. And Jesus says, let it be done to you according to your faith. He touches their eyes and immediately they are healed. And they begin following him along with all the rest of those noisy people. <laughs> As Jesus, the disciples, and all the people troop through Jericho, you can imagine the attention they are drawing. Now, there is a very rich man living in Jericho. His name is Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus has not come by his riches, honestly. You see, back then, the Romans required all sorts of taxes and tributes from the regions they had conquered. The Herods in the north and eastern parts of Palestine have to pay large tributes to Rome, which they, of course, collect from their subjects. Samaria and Judea in the southern parts, where Jericho is, operate under a slightly different system of Roman taxation. They pay taxes to various sorts of tax collectors who skim their bid off the top and then remit to Rome the totals required. This info is available from lots of sources, but I particularly appreciate an article about this by Alan Campbell in the fall 1986 issue of the Accounting Historian's Journal, which is a scholarly journal devoted to accounting historians. Who knew? My little accounting heart just pitter-pats at the thought of this. <laughs> but anyway, it's actually a wealth of information, huh? No pun intended. Um, anyway, according to Campbell, the people were subject to a water tax, a city tax, a tax on purchases, a road tax, a property tax, and an import-export tax, which is what we might call a customs tax, like when you come through, you know, U.S. customs. This, it is this last sort of tax that Zacchaeus is responsible for collecting. These types of tax collectors have a special title. They're called publicans. As people import or export goods, they pay taxes to the publicans. And the publicans can charge whatever they figure they can get. It's whatever the market will bear. And the people have little way to protest because the publicans are backed by the authority of Rome. So people pay what is demanded of them, and the publicans skim off the excess for themselves. The system is a pyramid scheme of sorts, with the rank-and-file publicans having to pay a chief publican who would then skim some more off the top and remit the funds remaining to Rome. And guess 
who the chief publican is in Jericho. You got it, our friend Zacchaeus. Now, Jesus has just healed the blind men outside of Jericho, and he and the crowds are making their way through the city. People are lined up to catch a glimpse of this great prophet and healer who might, just might, be the Messiah himself. Zacchaeus, of course, wants to catch a glimpse of him too, but he's got one big problem. Zacchaeus is short. (laughs) He can't see over the people in front of him. No one will let him through. But Zacchaeus didn't get where he is in life by letting circumstances block his way. Zacchaeus has a brilliant idea. He'll go climb that big sycamore fig tree over there and he'll have the best seat in the house. And that's exactly what he does. Now, it doesn't say this in the story, but if this is a big climbable tree just at the side of the road, who else do you think is up in the limbs of this tree? I don't think Zacchaeus is up there by himself. I think there are all sorts of children and street urchins up there already. Zacchaeus has to make himself like a little child in order to see Jesus. And that, as we all know, is exactly how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, sure enough, a few minutes later, Here comes Jesus and all the disciples and all of his followers. But then the craziest thing happens. When Jesus gets to the big sycamore fig tree, he stops. He looks up right at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down because today I am staying at your house. Now, How did Jesus know Zacchaeus's name? Have they met before? I wonder if there's some history here that we aren't privy to. This isn't the first time Jesus ever came to Jericho. Anyway, Zacchaeus can't get down out of that tree fast enough. He welcomes Jesus with open arms. But all the people who know what a horrible man Zacchaeus is All these people who have had their money extorted from them by him and his band of publicans, all these people who resent the opulence Zacchaeus lives in, cannot believe Jesus has chosen Zacchaeus out of all the people in town to stay with. Then we seem to be missing part of the story. The story like completely skips over the meal Jesus must have eaten with Zacchaeus and his friends who are like only his friends are the other publicans. Everybody else hates him. So there is nothing about what Jesus must have said to them. But we can guess that Jesus talked about how much God loves them and how there is life and wholeness and healing available for them too, if they will only stop worshiping money. When the story picks up again, Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, look, I now 
give half of all I have to the poor. And anyone I have defrauded, I will repay four times over. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today, salvation, which is a Greek word that literally means healing and wholeness. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to search for, to heal, preserve, to rescue, to save that which had been utterly destroyed. Zacchaeus had been utterly destroyed by money. This is such a beautiful snapshot of everything that Jesus came to do and has been doing his whole time on earth. It's a perfect way to end this series on Jesus' final set of parables. I think the parable of the workers in the vineyard and the story of Zacchaeus might yield some interesting results if we put them in dialogue with each other. Let's give that a shot in our breakout groups. All right. Welcome back. Yay. So talk to me a little bit. Um, I hope this was interesting to put these stories in in conversation, but um, talk to me first a little bit about what you said about fairness um, and what you think the the root of our sense of fairness might be. Or talk to me about anything else you want. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Where did y'all go with this? We didn't get very far because we were really trying to delineate justice and fairness. Are they synonymous? Are they different? How are they applied differently? So looking at the rest of it, I think I think we kind of touched on those topics, but we just never, in our discussion of that, we just didn't really get past justice and fairness. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit more about where you did get. Well, we talked about the um, question one, does it feel fair? No, it doesn't feel fair. Um, and um Anne brought up the prodigal son story and how that doesn't seem fair. And, uh, you know, just then we got into the fairness versus justice thing. And um, I don't know. I'll let Woody and Anne and Mary jump in with more about our discussion. But it was good. Well, we talked somehow this a sense of individual circumstances, individual need enters into it. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe that's more on the side of fairness, um, but we really struggled with uh, the difference. And, well, okay, in question two, the roots of our sense of fairness, one of the things we talked about was the fact that that the a big part, one of the big parts of the root of our sense of fairness seems to be equality. People, you know, we, we have this sense that people ought to be treated exactly equally. And that's not apparently what 
God's sense of justice is all about. And we had the opposite take. We had kind of a negative spin on it. We felt that possibly jealousy was part of a root of a fairness issue because you only claim that's not fair when you're comparing yourself to something else. So that's interesting. I'm going to throw in uh, human nature going back to a thousands of years old understanding of human nature that is in our scriptures. I think there's so much to take from um, Genesis um, and the story of Cain and Abel. Um, you had 25% of the known population of the world um, turn out to be murderers. And why was there murder? Because it was there was jealousy. And I think that the author and whoever was telling that story over and over before it ever got written down are telling us a lot about human nature. Why in heaven's name, God, did you think that that needed to be part of creation or didn't anticipate what we would do with it? I'll throw that little heresy out there, but, <laughs> but um, I think that what Jesus is telling us over and over and over again is we can't limit ourselves to our human nature. We can, we can do better when you know better, do better kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so mm -hmm. I saw a really uh, interesting little um, quick video on Instagram yesterday by uh, a young teacher and my utter apologies to this darling precious teacher because I don't remember her name. And if I went to Instagram, my Instagram would have like seen that I saw it and it will never appear on my feed again. So I'm just going to tell you what she did um, because I thought it was so powerful. But um, when she, she teaches younger children and she says, the first day of school, I ask if anybody has ever skinned their elbow. And, oh. and of course, all the hands go up. And so she calls on somebody and says, well, tell me about how you skinned your elbow. And they tell their little story. And she gets out a Band-Aid. She gets out several Band-Aids. She gets out a Band-Aid and she puts it on their elbow. And she says, has anybody ever fell down and hit their head? And hands go up, more hands go up. And, and she lets, she points, calls on somebody to tell their story. And as soon as they're finished telling all about how they hit their head, she takes out a Band-Aid and goes, puts it on their elbow. And, and then she says, has anybody ever skinned their knees? And every hand goes up. Well, tell me about when you skin your knees. And whenever they finish telling her about skinning their knees, she takes out another Band-Aid and goes and puts it on their elbow. And she, the, the idea that she's getting across is that everybody got a Band-Aid in exactly the same way, but not everybody got what they needed. Oh. That's great. That's wonderful. That. that is the difference between fairness and justice. That is so the difference saying... between how humans apply fairness and how God applies justice. Hand, Martha. So that helped me kind of extend something that I 
I was thinking about um, when you read the, when you went through the, um, through the workers in the field story. Mm -hmm. The first part that I got for the first time when you went through it was that um, the landowner asks people why the five o'clock crew why are you still standing here? We've been here all day. No one hired us. Well, guess who didn't hire them initially? Was that same landowner? So that to me was kind of my first aha moment. But based on what oh. you're talking about right now was what did the landowner see? He saw what they needed and provided it with some measure of dignity. Um, so... So I will offer that up. That's wonderful. Woody, you had a comment or two, I think. Oh, I've, I've already forgotten it. Oh, welcome to my world. <laughs> Gail? Yeah. To me, this, this brings up the idea of um, our access to heaven. And deathbed conversions used to always bother me. Because I would say, well, that's not fair. You know, I've lived my life doing this. And then they just have a 11th hour thing and blah, blah, blah. And to me, that's, and of course, I've definitely grown past that, praise God. But to me, this is kind of the similarity here is that, you know, these people, uh, the laborers were begrudging the ones that came in at the 11th hour, so to speak. But you know, we're, that's the sense of justice, I think, and fairness that we're supposed to imply, uh, apply to one another. And Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector, you know, how dare Jesus go be with him? But of all the people that were seeing Jesus that day, who needed him the most? And it would have been Zacchaeus. And so, you know, going back to that need thing. And we did discuss that quite a bit in our group, you know, that it goes to your needs. Bar, when Jesus meets with Zacchaeus and Jesus and Zacchaeus has his conversion moment and says, I'm going to make this right. That also benefited everybody else. And so in our jealousy of, oh, well, somebody got something I didn't get, which, you know, if you want to think about the, um, whether or not there's going to be student loan forgiveness. Yeah. What what can what other benefits come to the larger community when debt is forgiven? Yeah. Amen. One of the things we mentioned in our group was, uh, and this is kind of skipping down to the questions about Zacchaeus, is that one of the things that he most needed or most valued was to know that he that God loved him because he knew he was hated by people. Yeah. And uh, so he needed to know that God loved him. And and I, as, as somebody said, after that dinner with Jesus, he would have had no doubt that God loved him. Being ostracized is the worst thing we mm -hmm. can do to people. Mm -hmm. That is the worst thing. That's why even in prison, being in solitary, you know, it's just we, the layers 
where we get down to where we reject and ostracize people. That's why I think the biggest thing that Jesus gave Zacchaeus is in those that very last thing Jesus said. He said, this is a son of Abraham too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the, I want to go back to what Lumar said on those deathbed confessions, which is a great example. <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, it gets to the heart of, of the fact that we have drawn into our spiritual DNA a sense that payment is required. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus says, nope. One of the most enlightening experiences that happened to me in this regard was when um, my daughter adopted those three children. Um, the, The bio mom was a drug addict. The bio dad was a sex offender. And we were having a conversation one day about what awful parents they were and what a horrible situation the children came from. And later, as I was thinking about that conversation, it occurred to me that God loves them, too, as much as he loves me. And boy, I didn't like facing that. But that was the truth. That is the truth. And no one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond God's love. And God's going to go out there and pursue redemption. It's not like, you know, God's going to come get us. Right. You right. know? Joe. Well, I was sure when I, when I used to teach, um, and it was theme and, theme and lesson, you know, we'd sing the Itsy Bitsy Spider song. And I said, okay, it seems like a simple little rhyme, but what do we learn from that? And there's so many things that can be learned. Does that. everybody you know that, you know, the itsy bitsy spider climbs up the water spout, down yes. comes the rain, down and comes rain, and wash the spider out. out, up comes the sun, dries up all the rain, and the itsy bitsy spider climbs up that spout again. So there's there's so many lessons in that. And I just remember at some point in our church, and you know, we taught that Zacchaeus was a wee little man song when the kids were younger. And then in high school, we talked about what does it mean? And we all kind of concluded that the story of Zacchaeus is like that itsy bitsy spider. There's so many lessons in this from no one is beyond being saved. Um, Jesus reminds us that he came here to save the lost, right? Um, to don't he came be prejudiced. To find the lost, to heal and make us whole. Yeah. Yes. You know, watch your prejudices, who we feel deserves and doesn't deserve something Mm -hmm. is a form of a prejudice so there's just for me so many little lessons about Zacchaeus um but it also all kind of boils down to the you know God asks us to follow him Mm -hmm. and Zacchaeus did it and that I think also asks us to trust I think part also part of what underlies our sense of fairness is mm-hmm. is that that's coming from a place of scarcity. Whereas justice comes from a place of abundance. 
That's kind of the point of the little pie chart that I selected as the picture to represent this class. Fairness comes from a place of scarcity, but justice comes from a place of abundance. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> that that um, means... How, how does fairness come from a place of scarcity? It, it means that there's that everybody has to have an equal amount, and if somebody gets too much, somebody else is getting less. It means there's not enough for everybody. So it, it, it means that we think that we're entitled to a larger bit than what somebody else has, as if we're slicing a pie into pieces. If we define, if we define fairness as equal. As equal. Yes. Okay. So, yes. So it depends on how you define fairness. True. Mm -hmm. True. True. And feel free to, you know, jump in and give other definitions, you know. Well, like Martha said, if, if fairness is defined as equal or equality, then then I, I see your point. Yeah, it's like everybody getting the same thing, which was the point of the the, the parable of the day laborers. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so so um, Zacchaeus, I wanted to to talk a little bit about. Um, how Zacchaeus already had riches and money and he was very important and all the things, mm -hmm. but what was it that he needed so desperately that he had to go climb that tree to see Jesus about? Any ideas? I think he needed recognition that he was a person too. It, his job was not him and with everybody ostracizing him he needed somebody to care about him not because he had money but care about him as the person he was he he needed to see jesus mm -hmm. and he i think he felt like he hoped that jesus would see him really see him you think it also speaks to our notion that we learn that money doesn't buy happiness. Do you see people that are filthy rich and yet they're still empty? Mm -hmm. The tree was also something of a safe place. And the really, really lush tree that was shown in the uh, image that Gail had, I'm not sure Jesus would have actually seen him up there. Uh, <laughs> you don't really actually look a lot like that in Israel. <laughs> but, um, but, it was safer for him to climb a tree than it was to try to make his way through the crowd. Cause you know, was he likely to be attacked by the people who he was collecting money from? Probably not cause he had the Romans behind him, but would he feel safe? Would he feel like he's really standing out and that would be really super uncomfortable. Um, so it also provides for you know, the, the idea of, of God meets you where you are and where you need without expectation that you perform in some sort of public way um, or follow some kind of a formula to be in right relationship. Mm -hmm. 
I um, in the class, I think I talked about Zacchaeus it being an image of being childlike, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was big too. <laughs> and entering the kingdom of heaven, but what you know, there's lots of ways we could look at this. We I don't remember who it was that just now said that that Zacchaeus, maybe Joe, it was that Zacchaeus has perhaps reached the end of the joy that money could bring him and discovered that it is empty. So, so now what happens if we put the stories in dialogue with each other? Um, uh, What, how can the story of the day laborers be, be talked to um, and with the story of Zacchaeus? What, was important about Zacchaeus's repayment of the people he cheated. I think that one of the things about him making it, I don't want to use the word atonement, but that's the only one that comes to mind right now, um, is he could make the people realize he changed. If he hadn't done anything, if he kept doing the same things he was doing before, the people wouldn't have realized that he had actually changed and wasn't going to take advantage of him anymore. And that also, so that made the people, okay, he's not so bad. You know, he's changed. He's better. I can be friends with him. Where before, if he hadn't done that, he would have probably still felt worse because it gave him something to do to make people like him. So I don't think it was required for him to do that. I think he got, Jesus just knew, Hey, you get the money back. You're going to feel better because you're not going to feel like you're a thief anymore. And the people are going to feel better because you're not taking all their money anymore. And I think it was more of a relationship thing than, like a justice thing or a a punishment. That reminds me of the uh, parable Jesus told about the dishonest manager um, that, that, that where the guy, you know, knew he's going to get fired. So he gave money away to his master's money away to all the people who might be able to hire him. (laughs) You know, it was Jesus was just saying it's not about the money; it's about the heart. But it, there is something important about the idea of restitution and reparation in in the Hebrew law. If you sinned against a person, not only did you bring a sacrifice, but you repaid that person plus twenty percent. And if whatever you had done couldn't didn't have an economic value, it wasn't like you stole their cow and there's a an mm-hmm. economic value. If you had harmed them in a way that it was difficult to put a price on it, the priest would be the one who would set the value that was necessary for you to to um, give. Yeah, Martha. And the kids was not Jewish, correct? You know what? It doesn't Don't say. Uh, it doesn't say, and it's entirely likely that he was. What? What did it? What did she? What, Martha? What did you say? I asked if Zacchaeus was Jewish. So if he was Jewish, oh. then he understood that about Jewish law, um, and he had the Roman backing, and maybe it was 
you know, one of those things where the Romans took advantage of the the local people. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like you really want to say something there. I'd love to hear what it is. Well, as I say, I had learned that he was Jewish. And okay. so this was like a double affront for him to be Jewish and take money for the Romans. And that that's where the son of Abraham thing came from. But now, Gail, you had just put it as we're all sons of Abraham's. But I had learned. Yeah, not back then. That was not, you right. know, in this culture, within the context of the of the scripture, their sons of Abraham were Jews. Right. And the Jews, right. the, the high priesthood itself was a political and bought position. Can I um, point out uh, for a little bit of emphasis something that you said um, when Jesus healed the two blind men, he asked them what they wanted. He never assumes what people want for healing. Um, I'm uh, working in a volunteering in a chaplain's office um, at a nursing home right now. And one of the big uh, things that's very clear from the example set by the chaplain um, and and how I'm trying to uh, do what I'm called to do there is to never assume what somebody wants. You don't tell them you're going to move their wheelchair. You ask them, may I assist you? Do you need assistance? You don't assume anything materially, physically, or spiritually. You um you find out what is important to them and if your presence is not what they want you gracefully exit the room yeah so it's just such a great example of pastoral care that applies in many ways including you know i had a friend who um had another friend who lost a child from suicide and my friend was so desperate to go to them and the family was saying not now not now not now it was really hard for her to accept that her job was at that point not to go um and then when the time was right she did but we can't you know we can't this is just such a great example of pastoral care including just in daily life Amen. Yes. Yes. Any other thoughts on all of these things jumbled together, these par- these parables? The thought I have is that we could continue talking about this for several weeks. Yeah. This is a really deep and basic concept. And, and this is part of why this last class series on the the last parables of Jesus require its own focus because the this is where he's pulling out the important things he he wants his disciples to remember you know the there's parables and events and things that happen um that where Jesus is these are the these are the big things you know, and the the striking at the difference between fairness and justice is really important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand that if anybody has faith, just if they just believe the tiniest bit, they've got it all. They are heirs of the kingdom. 
it, it's not going to run out. So it's a huge thing. Uh, and I, and I had, I had one other last thought. Um, and that was that the Zacchaeus story is a story of the last and the least becoming the first and the most, because in this little scenario, Zacchaeus is the least liked, the least accepted. In fact, he's hated. And for good reason, right? For good reason. And I think Jesus is saying it doesn't matter if you have good reasons for disliking or fearing or hating the other. It doesn't matter if you have good reasons. The point is that we are to change so that we do not justify a lack of love and welcome based on our so-called good reasons. And folks, somebody um, taught me, helped me with an issue that I was dealing with at work one time where, you know, I could I could just head into a danger zone, right, and find myself in it before, you know, before I stopped myself. I, I would just find myself in this a, a situation I needed to not be in. And, and what what this woman who worked with me said... What I want you to do is start to realize sooner and sooner that you're heading into that place so that you have more opportunity to decide whether or not that's really what you're going to do um, so that it's not an inevitable outcome. So if you can begin to recognize and I and I you can get it to something else to happen. And I think that one of the lessons here is when we start to have those feelings rise up in us, if we can recognize sooner and sooner, what's my motivation here? What's troubling me about this? Is this about the kind of fairness and justice that is, is what Jesus intends that we can move further back from the opportunity to find ourselves in a thinking, talking, behaving in a sinful way, in a way that does not respect dignity, does not provide what people need that might be passing judgment. So, you know, I think that to me, this is one of the takeaways of this is when I, because we all feel when there's, when we, when we blurt out that that's not fair, there's some serious feelings around that, right? So I, I offer that, I offer that up. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. This is, this is getting down kind of where the rubber hits the road in our souls around, is God enough for us? And can we keep focused on God and not worry about what everybody else is getting. <laughs> if can we be simply standing at the storehouse of heaven, flinging 
everything we find out to everybody else. It is a different way to look at life. And I'm having an issue. Um, and Joella knows the background. I basically disowned my um, some because of politics, some because of racism and hatred. And it's a hard thing to do. And I am that kind of draw the line in the sand person, but it takes a lot. It has to build. It has to build. Um, she's always been like the little backstabber person. And you give her an inch, she takes a friggin' mile, and and just the, the whole hatred. And so I'm really having to figure out, I know the right thing is to say, you know, we should like have some kind of a relationship. But I know the minute I do that, then the old BS is coming back. And like the last text I sent her was really horrific. It, it took me out of my comfort zone because I tend to be not real confrontational. But like I said, when you cross that line, you're going to meet the bear. And she met the bear. And so I'm dealing with this and I'm listening to you guys and you guys are all peace and love. And you guys are really nice people, by the way, much nicer than I am. But I know in my heart that if I open myself up to those two again, then boom, we're going to go back to square one. And I don't know that I can do that. Yeah. And, and it, I, isn't just, it isn't just that they take a mile. It's that they treat people horribly. Mm-hmm. They treat people horribly. It isn't just taking a mile. Yeah. And I think that there are many in and th- who are sitting here today who com- have have sat with that pain. Ellen yeah. and Erica for sure. I know I have um and um the answer is not that you have to let them continue to hurt you. The answer is that you do not you do not have to move over into the the land of racism and hatred in order to have you know you that you are allowed to have boundaries all right boundaries are healthy and good what we're I think what we're how we come to peace with this is that we have a boundary that has the ability to move. I call, I call, I, 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 I think of boundaries in terms of orange traffic cones, (laughs) you know, and, and not as walls. So if that if that person is able to not damage me or others, then I can move that boundary cone, you know, closer into them, you know, f- further out and able to expand. But if they're a whirling dervish of razor blades, I need to move that boundary cone further from them. 
I am not responsible for fixing them. That's part of what this is all about. I am responsible for allowing them the space in which they can be fixed. You know, I am responsible for allowing them a room to change. I am responsible for being there if there is a question for speaking words of 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 peace into a situation to the extent that I can. And sometimes you can't speak anything without causing the razor blades to go flying. Sometimes silence is all that you can do, right? Um, so there is no magic formula that says you have done enough or you have not done enough. All right. But a whole lot of what underlies this lesson today is that each of us needs to stay out from in between God and the other person. Okay. We are focused on God. We are giving all the goodness that we can. We're not lobbing hand grenades over the, over the boundary cones. <laughs> okay. And if you feel like you have lobbed a hand grenade over the boundary cone, it's perfectly okay to, to, to retract that, to say, you know what? I felt like my last text was really harsh. I want you to know I love you, even though we can't actually have a relationship. You know, whatever that looks like. If if that's what your heart is telling you, go for it. But still feel empowered to keep those boundary cones right there. You do not have to respond. You do not have to engage. Okay? You are empowered to speak what you need to say. You don't have to go any further than that. Any other observations from other folks? A number of years ago, I was given a Buddhist teaching that was helpful with situations like this, and we all have them, Gail. I, I thank you for including all of us. Um, that a, a principle of Buddhism is when you are in an opposing force, and that's what it feels like. We are fields of energy, and we, when we are in these situations, we're opposing forces. We're pushing against each other. Um, the teaching is that you just put that to the side, you know, take your focus off, and the energy continues to happen within that person or that situation or whatever. And it's not the language of the Buddhist, but for me as someone that is Christian and Catholic, it's the opportunity. And you just said it, it's the opportunity for God to intervene and work in that space with them and with me, you know, the best case I changed too, you know? Um, and I just, I found that, pretty simple, but helpful because I'd never heard it articulated that way. And I thought, yeah, it's, it puts a mental picture in just to move it to the side. You don't take it totally out of your sight, your sphere, because these are people you love oftentimes or people you work with that you care about. And um, I, I, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I think, Gail, you kind of led that 
conversation for me to think about that. And I, I do want to say one thing. This has been on my heart all week. I love Pentecost. I, I love the message of Pentecost. And last week in this group, we came together as a group once again and learned from the teacher. Thank you, Gail. You opened our minds to so much. And the richness that came out of that, and I won't name specifics because I do honor the sacredness and trust of our groups. What happens here stays here. I, <laughs> I believe that. But I, each of us, and some so beautifully changed me by their vulnerability and their honesty. And to me, it was a Pentecost moment because we came with different voices. We all come from a different background. I learned that every time I am with you, and I thank you for that. Um, my journey is enriched because you don't think exactly like I do. That's the beauty of inclusion. And it was a sacred, sacred time. It always is good. But last week, I don't know how anybody else felt about it, but the vulnerability that people offered and the honesty. I'm a Broadway person. You're going to hear this from me many times. I love Wicked because I have known you. I have been changed for good. And Gail, you led us into that sacred space and gave us a place to explore that. And there was conversion for me. I, I'm have a feeling for some others, it was the same shared experience. And I just wanted to say thank you. I have carried that all week. And that's to me what community is about. You know, we leave each other and we go back to our lives. But when you've been left with something that you can hold in your heart for a whole week and reflect on it and be changed because of it, that is God in our midst, in my language, that is the spirit alive and well. It is the tongues of fire. It is us understanding each other. And I thank you for that. Thanks. Well said, Mary. Well said. Thank you. It was special last week and I carried it in my heart too. And, um, and this week has been special too. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, we talk about real things in here. Yes. And, yes. Um, and the 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 little 30 minutes that I do is just the platform from which we dive into the pool of the Holy Spirit, you know? So that's it for this week, unless there's other um, comments. Yeah, I'm just going to set this, the record straight for Ann McEnroe, that if I had to make a list of the kindest people I know and people who've changed the world for the best, oh my God, how many people called You'd be in the top three. Accept that, Anne. Yes. Yeah. Accept that. So I just don't want anybody else to be fooled by her saying she's not nice. Because that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so as we as we go, I do want to say goodbye. And Anne, I would like you to stay on uh, just a, a minute because I have a question I need to ask you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Love you.
Love you too.